bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing dried that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints, prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for the pain and sores they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were left to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail. Because the plague was so severe. So severe. You know, as a teacher, one of the things about in, 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 in a classroom, and, and it's what we used to talk about all the time, is classroom management. How do you manage a classroom? If you can't manage a classroom, you can't teach. And so there are things to do and there are things not to do. Let me ask you this. Would you consider this just and fair? And I've been guilty of both of these, all right? You got a few in the classroom, they're acting up. And they're just, they won't be quiet. They, they just won't get with the program and you're trying to do something. And it's, it's just a few of them. Say you got a class of 15 or so and it's, it's maybe three or four sitting in the corner and they just won't get with the program. And then finally you just had it and you say, okay, that's it. Every one of you get a zero for the day. Everybody gets a zero for the day. Now, I have to admit, I've done that before. <laughs> you just get frustrated. Fly the handle, everybody gets a zero. And invariably what happens is that little great student, usually a little girl, who's quiet, never gives any problems, makes straight A's, great student, and, and, and she comes lip trembling. <laughs> I wouldn't do anything. And if I get a zero, my parents are going to kill me. And then you go, oh, man. I blew that one, didn't I? And so then you, have, you, know, you go back and you say, okay, i got to do what's fair. All right, you knuckleheads are getting the zeros. And, and then, and then you, and you've lost control. That's one of the quickest ways to lose control of the classroom. Now, you could do just the opposite, too. Because you can say, all right, we got a test, and uh, a, a test on Friday. Friday rolls around, 
And there, there are those good students, and they've been studying all week. They've been pouring over the material. They've been memorizing. They, they've got it down. They've been sweating bullets. They've they got to have good grades. They're going to get in college and all this stuff and scholarship money. And, man, they have just studied and studied and studied. And then there are those same little knuckleheads. You know, they don't do anything. They're lazy. They don't study. They don't do anything. And so test rolls around in that morning, and they go, hey, look. Man, you won't believe the week I've had. And they start giving you excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. My dog ate my study notes, everything. I mean, you know, it just, and, and, and then you, maybe you're feeling in a good mood and you say, okay, hey, we'll put the test off. We'll put it off. Hey, you guys take the weekend and study. And, and then there's those same good students who have spent the whole week studying. And you know what? They're seething man. They're ready to take that test. Is that just? Is that fair? No, it's not. And it's the quickest way for a teacher to lose control of the classroom. Because then the students realize there's no justice here. There's no fairness here. And then, and then you lose it. Well, here's the thing. Some people think of God that way. Some people think of God just sitting in heaven flying off the handle. I mean, there's, 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 there's no rhyme or reason to why. He's just sitting in heaven and he gets, he gets ticked off at everything and throws a virus at us. Or he gets ticked off, he's sitting in heaven, and he just said, I said, I've had it. Here's a hurricane. Innocent people are suffering. Yeah, there's some bad people out there. But you know what? Not just bad people got coronavirus. You realize that, don't you? And so some look at God and they say, they curse God and they say about God, see, I'll see what this God, if he's a God of love and he's, he's just and he's fair, why? This, these, he's just sitting up there, he's capricious, and he just gets angry, flies off the handle, and wham, he hits us with a judgment. And that judgment falls on innocent people, and how could God be just in allowing that to happen? Now, there are people that think that way. If, you, if, you've, if you've listened in certain areas, you've heard that through coronavirus. You'll hear it every time some natural disaster or something happens. You'll hear people saying that kind of thing, and they'll curse God. And they'll say, we can't, no, God, we can't believe in a God who's going to do that. We can't believe in that. Who's going to hurt the innocent in this process? And so are his judgments? I mean, this is a question. It's a legitimate question. It's a question that's being asked right now. It's a question that's been asked over the last six or seven months. Because I think this is a judgment from God. I think he's speaking in judgment. So if that's true, if this is a judgment from God and he's speaking in judgment then are his judgments random, arbitrary, and he just flies off the handle and sends judgments? You see, if we're thinking biblically, and as a believer who's trying to discern this from the Word of God and thinking from a Christian worldview, then we, we immediately say, no, 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 hold on. Wait a minute. His judgments are just, and his judgments are true. Yes, sometimes in these temporal judgments, innocent people suffer, yes. At least on the surface, innocent people. But if we're thinking it biblically at all, then we don't come to the conclusion that God's just up there and he gets ticked off, flies off the handle, and wham, there's a hurricane. All right, let me, let me, let me do this. Hey, let, let, wham, there's a world war. Right? He's not that way. We understand that. We know that. And what we also know, if we're thinking biblically, and we're thinking through where we've been, and not just the last six, seven months or so, but we're thinking back through all of history and looking down and seeing these things that have happened, these, these horrible things that have happened, these horrible, evil people who have risen to power and slaughtered millions of people and all of these things that have happened. This is the first virus you realize that, right? This isn't the first virus this world's faced. So we look back and we see all of these specific acts, and I think they're judgments from God, and He's speaking in these acts. We also understand that they're building to something. There is one big final judgment 
that's coming. It's not going to be temporary. It's not going to be just a third of the earth. It's not going to be just a quarter of the people. It's not going to be just a few. It's not just going to be certain parts of the world. It is going to be the whole world plunged into the judgment of God. What's coming? I don't know how long. I don't know when. And let me say this. As we get into chapter 16, let me go ahead and confess to you. Let me go ahead and say this up front. I don't know the specifics of these judgments. I mean, I don't know how these things are going to unfold. There's a pattern, I think, here, and there's a main thrust of what he's saying here. I think that becomes clear. But if, 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 we, if we look at these judgments and think about, you know, this, this, this judgment that's coming, and, and, and we're looking for all sorts of specific things about what country is this and what country is that and where is this and what is that, we're, we stand to miss the thrust of what John's saying, of what God's trying to communicate in this. We stand to miss that. There is a sense in which things are building and building and building. These are not random. These are not God just flying off the handle. Here's the other thing that becomes so clear, and I think it screams at us in this passage. Right now, there is time to repent. Right now, there is time to turn back to God. Then, when it comes, it's over. It's over. There is no time to turn back to God. There is no repenting. It's over. In fact, what we'll see in this passage is that it's not like people were saying, oh God, please, just give us more time. Oh God, please, just give us a little bit more time and we'll turn back. No, there is this defiant, rebellious, they did not repent. In fact, what did they do? They cursed God. And we want to question the justice of his judgments? We're thinking wrong if we do. So right now, there is time to repent. There's time to turn back to him. Revelation 16 moves us, I think, and I've said this throughout the book of Revelation. I'm not so sure. When we got into chapters 4 and 5, and, and, and we started with the seals, and we started moving through that, and we saw the little breaks, and then we got to the trumpets, and we saw the great breaks there of chapter 12, 13, 14, that great theological center of the book of Revelation, I think, in which we see this war, we see the dragon, we see the Antichrist, we see the false prophet. By the way, they come up again in this passage. We see them, and, and as we walk through those passages, there, there's this sense in which all of this is going to culminate in the end, in an Antichrist, in the false prophet. But throughout history... We've seen this raise its ugly head over and over and over. That's why John says even now there are many antichrists. But everything that we saw in the seals and everything that we saw in the trumpets, and by the way, the bowls kind of go along with the trumpets a lot of, in a lot of ways. But everything we saw in the seals and everything we saw in the trumpets, and then with these breaks, it's almost like John it's almost like God and, and giving this revelation to John. Here are these horrible things that happen. And then there's these breaks. And it's like, okay, let me show you really what's happening with believers. Believers are safe and secure. We're sealed. We're okay. See, I think that's the design of these breaks. But everything with the seals and the trumpets was partial. When we get to the bowls... We don't read things like a third, a quarter. What we read when we get to Revelation 16 in the bowls is it is finished. What's finished? It's what this angel tells these seven angels to go do. What does the angel tell the set? What, what are they told to go do? Pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. It's final. It's complete. Now, I want to put these in three groupings, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. So if you're wanting to know, okay, like for instance, the first bowl, give me the details, man. Give me the specifics. I want to know exactly 
you know, what this is, and I want to know exactly what country this is and this or that or what. You're going to be sadly disappointed because I don't have a clue. I don't know the specifics of how this is going to play out. Neither does anyone else. So when you pick up books and you read and and they've got all these details about how these things are going to play, they don't know. They don't know any more than you and I know. I don't think that's the purpose of what God's giving this for. We're going to put them in three groupings. We're going to deal with the first four because they seem to go together. And again, these first four seem to go just like the first four trumpets. But there's a difference here. There's a little bit of a difference. One of the differences I've already mentioned, these are full. These are final. But the other difference is, as he pours out this on nature, people are affected. People are affected. We'll see this. The other thing that's lurking behind this, and it's been lurking behind 15, it's been lurking behind a lot of where we've been over the last several chapters in Revelation, is the exodus. The greatest act of redemption in the the old covenant, the exodus. And that's lurking behind the scenes here. I think you'll pick it up. Let's look at the first grouping. He says in verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels... This loud voice. Who do you think that loud voice is? It's coming from the temple. Who do you think this is? We've seen loud voices, right? I think it's God. I think it's loud voice. It's God. And I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go, command it. This is not, if you got time, look, when you can get to it, no, this is a command. This is what you're to do. This is to be your priority right now. You go, tell the angels to go and pour out On the earth, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This ain't pretty. This is the wrath of God. You remember chapter 14? You remember chapter 14? That that horrific scene of the wrath of God for all eternity in hell? And you remember the descriptions that were given of that? Do you remember the agricultural metaphors that were the most, the one that sticks out in my mind is how people are thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God and they're trodden down and the blood that comes out of that wine press, four to five feet tall for 200 miles? Who's treading these people under his wrath? It's God. Well, wait a minute. God can't do that. Well, that's not the kind of God I, I want to worship. That's not the kind of God. I mean, God's love, right? I mean, he's like Santa Claus. Santa Claus doesn't do that. No, we're going to take him as he's revealed himself. And yes, God is just, and we'll see it here in just a second. So go pour out the wrath of God. So this isn't pretty. So what happens to the first angel? What does the first angel do? He goes and he pours out his bowl on the earth. Pours it out on the earth. And notice this. And again, these kind of follow the trumpets a bit. So this first bowl on the earth. But notice this. Here's something about the bowls. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Here's the other thing about God's judgments here. Do you see? You're going to pick this up in this. They are selective. If it's being poured out, and what happens here is that the people who were singled out here Sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The implication is there are people who, what? Don't worship the beast. This is selective. This is targeted. This isn't God just flying off the handle and saying, Oh, I'm going to give them sores. Whoops, oh my goodness, one of my children got sores. Oh, man. Hey, somebody go down there and clean this mess up. That's not God. That's not the way He operates. And even on the day of judgment, when this comes, Malachi talks and talking about this, the day of the Lord. When it comes, it's selective, it's targeted. His people, we're okay. We're okay. Which, which indicates that his people are going to be here when this happens. Now, who are they? I don't know. Is, is, is the church taken out before this? I don't know. We've discussed those kinds of things. But what, what is clear is this selective, targeted, and it's the people who worship the beast. So in other words, you've got a choice to make here. You want to continue following the beast? Go ahead. This is your end. This is your end. So then the second angel poured out his bowl onto the sea. He pours his bowl out onto the sea. Notice he pours it out on the earth. What happens? These sores. I don't know what these sores are. 
There's all kind of speculation. I don't know. And then here comes the second. He pours out his bowl onto the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Again, specifically, I don't know how this is going to happen. And I don't know. But what I do know is that the second angel pours out his bowl, and this is the wrath of God, and it affects, he pours it out onto the sea. And then notice this, the third angel pours out his bowl. And he pours his bowl out into the rivers, onto the rivers and the springs of water. And they became blood. Now the description of this is that it's not pretty, it's not light, it's, 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 it's something horrible that's happening. But then, just like the book of Revelation as a whole, guess what we get? We get a break. The intensity of it, and then we get a break. And notice this break. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters. Have no idea who the angel in charge of the waters is. Evidently, there's an angel in charge of the waters. These bowls have affected the waters, the sea, the rivers, the springs of water. And then I heard the, the angel in charge of the waters say, notice what this angel says, just are you. Just are you. This is justice, O holy one. Who is and who was? Why do you think it doesn't? He didn't say, the angel didn't say, and is to come. It's because it's answered in the very next part, you see. For you brought these judgments. He's already here. It's already come. And notice what he says you brought these judgments. You brought these judgments. Who brought them? The just one, the holy one. And in verse 6, for they. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Notice, I think there's a play here. They shed blood. What did you do in your wrath? You gave them what to drink? Blood. They shed the blood of your saints and prophets. We've seen this, right, throughout the book of Revelation. As this thing unfolds, it's going to be horrible, and there are going to be a lot of Christians who are going to be killed. Have there been a lot of Christians killed in the history of the church? Absolutely. You realize in the last 150, 200 years or so, there have been more martyrs of the faith. There have been more Christians killed than the history of the church, all the history of the church up to that point. There have been more killed in the last 150 to 200 years. Did you know that? They have been slaughtered. They have been killed. You remember the scene where earlier we saw under the altar there were the souls of those that had been slain? You remember they're crying out, How long, O oh God? When are you going to avenge us? And you remember what God says? You've got to wait a little longer. There's more that are going to die. And then we read in other places where if it's appointed, if you're appointed for the sword, then to the sword you're going to go. But don't you worry. Don't you worry. They shed the blood of the saints, and what is God going to give them to drink? Blood. Their blood, His wrath. He will avenge Christ. He will avenge the saints. The English Reformation, Henry VIII, Henry VIII didn't start the English Reformation. Henry VIII wanted a divorce. The Catholic Church wouldn't give it to him, so what did he do? He did only what kings did in the, in the, in the reign of absolutism. He started his own church, put his own archbishop in place, and said, now give me a divorce. And what did he do? Gave him a divorce. It was actually Henry's son, Edward, as the, English Ref as the Reformation teachings come out of Germany, and they hit English soil. And it was actually Edward, and Edward was killed. Edward, Edward didn't live very long, but Edward went a long way to bringing Reformation teachings to England, opening England up to the teachings of Luther and Calvin and those. And then after Edward, do you remember who came to the throne? Uh, before Elizabeth. Elizabeth completed it. But there was a reign of terror before Elizabeth. <laughs> bloody Mary. Why was she called bloody? She put hundreds, hundreds of faithful believers who were true to Reformation teachings, she put them to death by the hundreds. She slaughtered them. She was going to make sure England stayed Catholic. wasn't going to go Protestant. That's why she was called Bloody Mary. There were two that were put to death during that time. Latimer and Ridley. There was also an archbishop who was Cranmer at the time. and 
these, these guys were steeped in Reformation teaching, and they were bringing, they were preaching, they were writing, they were making sure books were being circulated. Mary couldn't stand it. She had had it. And so let me give you the quick version of it. They, they, she has them arrested. She says, you know what, we're going to burn you at the stake. She makes Cramner watch as they burn them at the stake. Ordinarily, a burning at the stake would take an hour, hour and a half. But if you really wanted to be cruel, you know what you did? You got Greenwood. And if you really, really wanted to be cruel, you know what you did? You doused it with water. It took almost four hours to burn Latimer and Ridden. The fire starts, it burns up, it burns their ankles, it burns up to about their knees, their lower legs and so forth, and then they, they try to get it going again, and it's agony. Okay, can you imagine the agony of being burnt? Now, you're not taken down and given time out. and No, you're, you're on a stake, you're tied to that stake. And at some point, this is a loose paraphrase, at some point, Latimer turns to Ridley and says, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. And he looks at him, because Ridley was kind of like his apprentice. And he looks at him and, and says, basically, play the man. Play the man. Don't you show fear. And he says to him, for today we shall light a fire in England that will never be extinguished. They did. The gospel goes into England, and then guess where? Through all of that, through the Reformation in England and all that happened with that, guess where the gospel came next? America. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man, Ridley. They shed our blood and you think our God's not going to avenge his martyrs you think in the day that great day in his wrath not to mention what they did to Christ and you think that he would not avenge that's what this angel's saying you were just. You were holy. You brought these judgments. They shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. And then he, he sums it up by saying this, it is what they deserve. They deserve this. There will be no innocent people in hell. There will be no one in hell who is innocent saying, oh gee, if I just had another chance. Oh gee, if I'd have just... No. They deserve His wrath. So then here comes the altar saying. I don't understand this either. The altar speaking. I heard the altar saying. It's sort of like confirmation. It's sort of like the angel says this, and it's sort of like saying, Amen! Confirmation. Yes, Lord, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So you can't sit back and say, well, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not going to believe in a God and all this stuff happens and you begin to curse God and say, well, he's, he's capricious, he's just randomly throwing this stuff out and innocent people are suffering. No, they're targeted. They're targeted. He is true. He is just. His judgments are just. When he pours out this wrath in the end, it is just. It is justice. It's not me as a teacher just saying, okay, you all get a zero. You see, it's not that at all. So now the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people. Again, see, your people are affected. It was allowed to scorch people with the fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. And they did not repent. You see this? They didn't repent. They cursed God. They did not repent and give him glory. Now here comes the fifth angel. The fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. What beast? It's the beast we've seen already. Remember chapter 12, the dragon. Chapter 13, the beast. 
that first beast, the Antichrist, and then then the false prophets. So the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. You notice the throne of the beast goes straight to the seat of power. Now in the first century, they would have been thinking particularly of Rome and the fall of Rome and the downfall of Rome. Rome comes to symbolize all evil opposed to God, but so does Babylon, we'll see in just a second. So the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness, spiritual darkness, blindness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and the sores, and they did not repent. You see? You, you see, when something is repeated like this, we pay attention. What are they doing? Cursing God. What does God do? Pours out his wrath. What do people do in response? Curse God. They don't repent. What does he do? Pours out his wrath on the beast. The one they've been following, the one they've been worshiping, the one they've given all their allegiance to. And this thing starts to crumble. This thing starts to come apart. And people are gnawing. And what do they do in cursing God? And they don't repent. You get the picture? Then here comes the sixth angel. The sixth angel poured out on the great river Euphrates. And his water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. The Euphrates would have been the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. The whole idea of this judgment, the drying up of the river. I told you what's lurking behind this is the Exodus. You remember God dried up the Red Sea? Remember he parted the waters and dried up the Red Sea? And Israel crossed over on dry ground, right? But guess who else entered that dry ground? Yeah, the Egyptians. The Egyptians followed him. And then what did God do? Send judgment. There's this drying up of the Euphrates. Why? It's so that these kings can cross over the boundary. There's a gathering taking place. I don't think this is a war. Some have looked at it and said, well, this must be some kind of war. No, the language here is of one decisive final battle. Notice what it says. The Euphrates is dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, remember the dragon of 12, Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, 13, the first beast, the Antichrist, and coming out of the mouth of the false prophet, here they are again. And and what's coming out of their mouth? Three unclean spirits like frogs. Here's where the exodus is lurking behind this. Frogs were unclean. Frogs were demonic. And so what John sees is is that there's this demonic spirit that's going out. And what's this demonic spirit doing? He, He specifically says, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. There's this deception. Hey, go out, gather them up. We're going to have one final showdown. In the history of Israel, the kings, at certain times, there were certain kings who believed lying spirits. And they were told, yeah, go to battle. Yeah, go in there. You're going to win. And what happened? They got slaughtered. And they believed these lying spirits. Here, this demonic, there's this demonic activity of leading these kings, leading these kings of the world into this one final slaughter. Now, I don't think they're going into this going, hey, let's go offer our head. I think they're going in here thinking, this is it. We're going to do it. We're finally going to get rid of this God. We're finally going to defeat this Christ guy. We're finally going to get rid of his people. This is, and so here they come. But notice, here comes a little break. Again, Jesus breaks through and says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blesses the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. In the midst of all this, Jesus breaks through and says, Look, I'm coming. I thought about it. Why, why break through now? I mean, why, why would he break through now other than things apparently at this point almost look hopeless? The pagans are coming full force and there's nothing to stop them. There's no river to hold them back. They've gathered in unity for one purpose. And there are demonic forces leading them. Everybody's on the field. Everybody's ready for battle. 
I don't see how possibly, I don't, man, how in the world could we possibly defeat this? Oh, behold, I'm coming quickly. You see, I think that's why that's put there. Just like the first break. You want to curse God? No, you can't curse Him. His, his, his judgments are, are just. They deserve this. Don't, don't panic over what, what, what is about to unfold. I'm coming quickly. And then verse, you see at the end of that uh, there in verse uh, 16, and they assembled them at, at the place that in Hebrew is called what? Dun, 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 Armageddon. There has been so much written about Armageddon. There's been so much written about Armageddon. In fact, we have to decide whether it is Armageddon, which would mean city of Megiddo, which was really insignificant, destroyed in 350 B.C., or whether it should be pronounced Har, H, Harmageddon. If that's the case, then it means Mount of Megiddo. The only problem is there was no Mount of Megiddo. Now, there was a valley. It was a valley called Jezreel. If I say, if I say this, if I go Monty, you all look at Monty, right? But if I say this, if I say, uh, Howard, would you go get Monty's tools? I would write that with an apostrophe S, right? You remember your English? I hope I'm getting this right. So it would show possession. So I'm talking about Monty's tools. And so there would be this little apostrophe. You remember what they looked like? Later on in Greek, this wasn't in the original Koine Greek, but later on in the Greek language, they had these what they called accents, breathing marks, and so forth. And, they, and, and the breathing marks looked like these apostrophes. And the one that looks like a regular apostrophe is called a smooth breathing mark. Doesn't affect anything. But then there's one that's backwards, and it's called a rough breathing mark. When that occurs, when a word begins with a vowel or the letter rho in the Greek, there is a rough breathing mark. The only thing that signifies is that you pronounce it H. Okay? You pronounce it H. Some manuscripts have the rough breathing mark. Some manuscripts don't. So, so scholars are divided. Is it Armageddon, or is it Harmageddon? If it's Harmageddon, referring to Mount of Megiddo, which there is really no mount, it's more like it was a, more like a hill. I don't know, did you go up into this area, north of Jerusalem? Valley of Jezreel? Yeah, if you go back into Judges and you read some of those battles, especially Deborah and Bar- uh, Barak and what happened in Judges 4 and 5, this great battle that happened there. God delivers the people in this valley. It's actually a valley. And it's wide. It's, there have been numerous, numerous, numerous wars that have happened in this valley. Yeah. Yeah. Hills and so forth. There's an interesting thing about the hills, too, in the mountain. In, in 1 Kings chapter 20, you've got... Um, You've got Syria giving Israel problems, and Ahab is going to go fight them. And Ahab goes out and defeats Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And they fight in the hills. And so Ben-Hadad's advisors get him and say, Hey, look, man, you're, you're fighting on their turf. You've got to get them down in the valley. You get them down in the valley, their God can't help them in the valley. And so what do they do? They wait till spring. And here comes Ben-Hadad and the Syrians, and they're in the valley. Guess what happens? <laughs> Israel's slaughters them in the valley. You remember, you know the song. That's where the song comes from. God is the God of the valley, not just the mountains. That's where it comes from. He is the God of all of it. Whether it's a mountain, whether it's a valley, that's not the point. The point is not either whether or not, because this could be used symbolically. This could be used of great victory. It was used that way. Armageddon was used that way. Or it could be that, yeah, this is going to play out in some point in the future where this spot, this particular spot, there's going to be a great battle. I don't think it's a war. It's a battle. Everything's going to be gathered together and it's one final battle that ends it all. The forces of evil are crushed. I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. 
I don't know if this is China, this is Russia, does this tie into God, Magog, Ezekiel? Who, who exactly is this? How does Israel feel? I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of ink spilt over that kind of stuff. I don't think that's the point. That's not the point. The point is, God has brought all this together for what purpose? To end it all. It is operating on His timetable. He is about to pour out. He has poured out His wrath. He's brought all of these forces together. And if it is some battle in the future, what a battle it will be. It's not really going to be a battle. (laughs) Jesus sitting in heaven saying, okay guys, what's our strategy? All He's got to do is show up and these forces are done. Right? It's over. So, so here it is, this, this Armageddon, now the seventh bowl. Let's get through the seventh bowl quickly. The seventh bowl, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done, it's finished, it's over. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. This was a huge earthquake. All, all the world, such as had never been since man was on the earth, so great was the earthquake. It's emphasized here. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon. Now, what 17 and 18 are going to do, 17 and 18 are going to fill in the blanks of this judgment on Babylon. So we see the bowls poured out in 16, and then 17, chapter 17 and 18 give us more description. Babylon represents all of the evil opposed to God. And so, here it is. God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of his fury of his wrath. Every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. And great hailstones about 100 pounds. The largest hail I've ever seen. Shay and I saw this early in our marriage. It was about softball size hail. And I can't tell you the damage that did. It stripped trees. You remember that? It was unbelievable. Can you imagine 100 pounds? Can you imagine that? I would have to think, even if I was an unbeliever and I saw a 100-pound hailstone fall through the middle of my roof, I would be repenting and confessing sin. (laughs) What do you think? Not so. Not so. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God. You see the pattern? They cursed God. For the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. They didn't repent. Right now, there's time to repent. Right now, in coronavirus, in whatever else is going on, right now, it's not final, it's not full, it's not complete. And it's time to repent. Then, it's over. They're not even, going, they're, they're not even wanting to repent. What are they doing? They're cursing God. This this is horrific. God pouring out His wrath and He's just. God's judgments are true. They're just. It's what's deserved. Final judgment's coming. No repentance here. Then why in the world do we give our heart our love and affections to this world system that is going to be judged finally, completely, for all eternity. Why would we even think about giving our affections to this? As a believer, why why would I even think about this? Well, I mean, God says we can enjoy His creation. Yeah, we can. We can. But God says that, that there can be blessings and there can be good and there can be, yeah, times of habit. Yeah, I get all that. I, I'm there. I'm with you. I love those times. I pray for those times. Well, what do you have that's not given to you? What do you have that's not a gift from God? And what does He give? He gives good gifts. This world doesn't give you good gifts. This world gives you something with a hook in it. And the hook in it is always this. What's lurking behind it always is worship the beast. Worship the beast. Worship the beast. Worship the beast. 
In fact, that's what we've seen unfolding in the book of Revelation. You're either going to worship Christ or you're going to worship the beast, right? That's, that's what's unfolding here. There's a choice there. So why give your heart? Why give your affections to this? John's very clear. John in chapter 2, verse 15 in 1 John says, Do not love what? The world. Why, do, why shouldn't I love the world, John? Because it's passing away. It's vanishing right before our very eyes, and in one day it's going to be judged completely. Return. There's time to return. I need to end with this warning. I need to read you something out of the book of Jeremiah. I want you to listen to this. This comes out of Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah is telling the people God's judgment's coming. The Babylonians are coming. He's judging you. You need to return to Him. You need to repent. And he's calling on Israel to repent. You've been faithless. You've broken the covenant. You need to repent. And you get down towards the middle of chapter 3, and Jeremiah says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the harlot? She needs to return. You skip down, and it says, Because... Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committed adultery with, with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me. She refused to repent. I never caught this before until recently reading through Jeremiah. Because I would always, in my mind, I would always kind of stop there. Yeah, God's just. She didn't repent. But this is, what Jer- this is what God says through Jeremiah. This is the complete thing that he says. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense. Do you hear that? She returned in pretense. You know what pretense means, right? She thought she could pull the wool over God's eyes. Ah, we'll just pray a little bit. We'll just go to church more. We'll just we'll do this. We'll do that. We'll we'll be good to our neighbor. We'll do this and that. Isn't it strange that every time something major happens, churches are full? Can't be full now because they won't let them meet, right? But look, you let it open up and let things happen and, and let this election go in a bad way. Man, you're going to see people going, we got to return to God. we got to return to God, right? Just like Judah. Just like Judah. What's worse than not repenting? It's returning in pretense. It's saying to God, Ha! We can fool you. Do you know how many people are trying to play that game right now? Coronavirus? Hey, we can pull the wool over God's eyes. Let's just tune in on Facebook and watch a church service. Now, I'm thankful they are because hopefully the truth of God will grip their heart, right? Or, 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 or you, see what, you see where I'm going with this? People who never even thought about church before. Now, all of a sudden, but, the, but it's, the danger is, is it in pretense? There's no real intention of giving a heart and soul to Christ. There's no real deep-seated move and conviction of sin and a need for a Savior. It's just, hey, let's just get God off our back for a little bit. After all, He's obligated, right? (laughs) He's obligated. All we got to do is go to church, and what's He got to do? He's got to bless us. Look, there are people that think that. What does pretense look like? Hosea deals with it in chapter 7. Hosea says that what happens is that people return when God touches their stuff. Remember Wayne talking about stuff? When God touches their stuff, 
When God touches their money, when God touches their health, when God touches their material things, then what do people do? Oh God, oh please, don't take that from me. Hosea says, that's returning to him in pretense. There's no concern for the glory of God. There's no real concern for repentance of sin. They did not, what? Repent. They didn't repent. In fact, they cursed God. And after a while, when you figure out and you realize, man, I can't pull the wool over his eyes, then you get angry. And people do end up cursing God. You need to turn to Him now. I am coming quickly. Don't let Him find us naked. We need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the way we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ is to turn from our sin and put our faith and trust in Him. See it? There He is. My warning is that in light of this judgment that's coming, do not return in pretense. Give Him your whole heart. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do heed these warnings. At least I pray that we do. I pray that we do. We know... That we are safe and secure in Christ. We know that. And so I just pray that you help us to live that. Live that every day. And we pray for those that don't know Christ. Burden our hearts. Father, we all know people who, this is true of them, this, this returning in pretense. It's not, it's not a genuine conversion. It's not a genuine work of your Spirit. I pray for that. I pray there be a genuine work of Your Spirit in our hearts, in our, in our family, our friends, our, our, our co-workers, our people that we're around. Help us to point them in that direction. Help us to live that in front of them and point them in that direction. There is time now to repent. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.